Welcome to In Real Life, the podcast brought to you by the Big Picture Film Club. This week, we have on a very special woman, Samantha Murray, the 2012 Olympic medalist for modern pentathlon. Sam, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's great to be here. So you were born in Preston, Lancashire, and you began competing in swimming, I think primarily, at the age of seven. Yes. Moved on to athletics quickly, and then... uh, other talents of yours were noticed. Right, so my mum wanted me to learn how to swim. Um, she can't, so enrolled me in the local swimming club called Clitheroe Dolphins, and I loved it, and I found that I was pretty competitive and enjoyed the galas, so they're the races for children. Um, and then whilst I was at school, I got into the school athletics team, enjoyed running, and I actually, I was bitten by that running bug straight away. I absolutely loved it. Um, So I went to a local athletics club and started to run for my county, Lancashire, uh, and took that really seriously. And then I was about 12, so still pretty young, and I went to a a competition called a biathlon, which is a run and swim. And um, that's where I saw some girls shooting and fencing. And I asked a volunteer, what are they doing? How come they're doing more disciplines? And she explained that they um, were doing the modern pentathlon. Uh, And I stayed and I watched the prize giving ceremony and there there was a poster of a lady crossing a finish line with her fist in the air and she looked really strong in a GB tracksuit. And I asked, who is this woman? Um, And I was told that she was the Olympic gold medalist from the Sydney Olympics a year earlier called Dr. Steph Cook. And whilst training for the Olympics, she'd also studied medicine at Cambridge. Wow. So I found that I was really inspired by that lady of course. and thought, she's amazing. I want to do that. And I want to go to the Olympics too. Really naive schoolgirl dream. But I took it forward. And thanks to facilities and a club in my town, I was able to pursue the modern pentathlon. I was quite lucky in that my grandma, uh, my grandparents were farmers and they had horses. They were dairy farmers. And my granny ran a weekly riding lesson on a Saturday And I was the helper. I would help with the liveries that they had and and ride all these ponies. And I loved it. So I could already horse ride, which is quite a hard skill to pick up. Um, So it was a case of learning the shooting and the fencing, which was really good fun. Uh, And and I already had the swimming and and running there as a foundation. So I took it forward and throughout my teens balanced it with school because that was always really important, especially with mum being an English teacher. I see. Mm. So... Modern pentathlon, I think there's not enough, you know, it's not, it's, it's not one of the most um, well-known sort of facets of the, of the Olympics. Um, and just to recap, it, it's in this order. It's uh, fencing and then swimming, show jumping and then pistol shooting and then some cross-country running. But the last two now alternate, don't they? That's right. So we start the day with fencing and it's epee fencing. And in a final for modern pentathlon, you have 36 athletes. And the idea is you go around everybody out of the 36, so you'll fence 35 times, just to one hit. You have one minute to score a hit, so you either win or you lose. You collect as many victories as you can. Each victory is worth 12 points. One point is one second. And then you go to the swimming pool and you swim a 200-meter freestyle race. The aim is to swim as fast as possible to collect more points. For the horse riding discipline, everybody's in rank order after two events, and whoever's winning draws a number out of a hat. 
and this correlates to a horse who's been given that same number. So you don't train on the same horse, it is not your horse. That's right. They the, give you a horse. The competition provides the horse. That is incredibly challenging because most horse riders tell, I used to horse ride and right. I know that it, I'd always like to pick two or, th you know, the same two or three if I could, if they were available every mm. week when I rode because it is hard to go on a horse that you don't know very well. Yeah, it's a the, huge challenge. It's the risk and, and it's the kind of, you never know what's going to happen in a pentathlon factor. Yeah. And that is the case even at the highest level. It's good in that it means a modern pentathlete doesn't have to pay for their own horse yeah. and find the funds to take it to Brazil, China, Russia, which would be impossibly expensive. Also the time management of that. So the competition sources the horses. They are all test jumped by their owners around the course. So you know the horse can do it, which is some reassurance. Um, but you have to be a rider who's able to, I suppose, be quite brave and mount any horse and get on with it. Mm. Um, so having a good level of experience on all different kinds of horses definitely helps here. And once you're allocated your horse, you're, giving, you're given a mount time and, and start time where you go into the arena and you do the 12 obstacles in, in show jumping format. Um, if you're clear, then you'll gain 300 points and any mistake you make, you'll be deducted from there. And then we move to the final event, the, the laser run, which you were right, it's the, com the combined running and shooting. So it's 800, it's an 800 meter run yeah. followed by shooting a target. Yeah, so it's, uh, and that so on and so forth, that alternates until right. uh, 3,200 meters. That's right, yeah. So it's, it's a 10 meter range with an air pistol that has a laser barrel on top. So it's, it's, we're not firing with pellets anymore. And this was to stop pentathletes being stuck at airports with firearm license issues. Right. <laughs> of course. I've spent hours at Moscow airport, they're not wanting to let us in, oh, you know, thinking we're military yeah. and actually we're just athletes, 14 year olds competing for the youth GB team. So they changed it for that. They also changed it so that for grassroots schemes, young children can learn how to laser pistol shoot. We can go into schools now and, and they can learn that side of the discipline. So it helps the sport all round. Yeah. So it's take your marks, go. You'll be in a staggered start. So whoever's winning on the highest points sets off first. In second place, we'll follow the points that they are behind. So if I'm, if I'm ahead with 5,000 points and you're 4,900, you're 100 seconds behind me, Jules. So wow. you'll start chasing me down. So those initial points are really, really crucial. Really crucial yeah. to set off that final race. You run to the, the target, you pick up the pistol and you shoot onto the black ring of a, of a target on the 10 meter range. And you have to hit the black five times. Once you've hit it, you can start running. And then you run that first 800 meter loop. You just follow this four times through. So it's four shoots, four runs. Um, so you need to shoot successfully 20 times and run. It's, it's um, how far is it? I've forgotten now. It's two miles. It's two miles or 3.2 kilometers. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge variety of skill sets required for, for competing in the modern pentathlon. And it's all done in a day, isn't mm. it? And where did this sort of formula derive from because the traditional pentathlon uh, in the ancient olympic games was long jump javelin throwing and discus throwing followed by short race and some and some wrestling um and so can you explain a little bit about the modern pentathlon and how it came to be sure so a man called baron pierre de coubertin refounded the ancient greek olympics in 1896 
And he was a military man and he was inspired by the story of a soldier who had to deliver a message to his captain, um, I think in the Crimean War. The soldier starts on foot, comes into combat, uses his sword, then comes to a river, swims across a river, comes into combat again, shoots this person, takes his horse, gallops, the horse falls down and finishes the journey running, successfully delivers the message to the captain and saves the day. Now, Baron Pierre felt that these five disciplines from this story encompassed his all-round ultimate athlete in terms of mental and physical prowess. And he wanted to see that in his Olympic Games. His Olympics are all about participation for everybody. It wasn't just for the gentry, it was for everybody and he wanted to include every sport. So his modern pentathlon is about his ultimate athlete. Wow. Yeah. So it's considered to be the sport at the heart of the Olympic Games. Um, and whenever it comes under question, oh, will modern pentathlon stay in the Olympic programme? That's the fight from the sport. They say, look, the guy who created the Olympics, he put us here, we've got to stay in. So that's why it's always yes, kept because in. it's continuation to appear in the Olympics. It has been questioned, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, every time. Yeah, yeah. And why do you, but, but why? When, when, as you say, it does fulfil these wonderful skill sets and shows, you know, that it's, it's someone that requires a bit of an all-round, you know, uh, skill sets and lots of different things and not just focusing on one. It's really sad and, and from someone who's competed in it and loved it, you, I guess it, it, it has been really difficult, but the sport doesn't receive the airtime, so doesn't get the sponsorship right. deals, doesn't have the ticket sales. And the Olympics, they need to make money, the IOC is a business and they need to cost their Olympics accordingly. Um, so that's why we're seeing sports such as skateboarding, gaming might be in the Olympics. It's all about revenue. It's about what they can bring to that. To wow, that. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, apparently Paris 2024, there will be gaming taking place under the Eiffel Tower. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so um, it's, the Olympics have got, the IOC have got a hard job in that they need to maintain the, the historic side of the game. So the, the sports such as modern pentathlon, wrestling, uh, athletic events. But they also need to allow the changing world and that people practice. Make adjustments yeah, for surfing, a more modern you know? world. Yeah. 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 Um, I wish our sport and other sports were, were more readily available on on, on television, on BBC One, or people didn't have to pay or go online to watch it, but that, that's just how it is. Every competition we do is streamed online via a, a portal on YouTube. So you can watch all the competitions, but you'd have to know about it to go online to yeah. find it. You wouldn't just stumble across it when, but when also you're TV it, on. It, modern pentathlon, it is slightly harder to train or to be even just to be introduced on a very basic level for children uh, to to the skills and to the activities definitely you know, fencing shooting i don't think i was ever offered fencing mm. when i was at school mm. uh riding i you know i had to do it on the weekend and things like that so it, it's hard it's there's there's i think the resource is slightly lacking isn't it well i can say this for growing up in the uk yeah definitely i mean also for the spectator this is a, a whole day event yeah for olympic ticket sales it's great because um, you buy a ticket and you get to watch five different sports. Absolutely. And they're in five different stadiums. So yeah. you get value for money there. And, and at Greenwich Park at the, at the London Olympics for the pentathlon, it was a 100% satisfaction rate versus, I think, BMX, which was 24%. Because 
these people bought one ticket, but they mm. went to the aquatic centre, Greenwich Park, where we had the equestrian and the running. Um, they also were in the Copper Box, where basketball took place. So they saw lots of different venues. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a full day. So it isn't a 90-minute football match, you know. <laughs> we're talking a bit longer here. This is nine till five business. So it doesn't lend itself to sit down and watch the modern pentathlon. You, you need to kind of flick in and out in between breakfast, lunch and dinner. Absolutely. Well, I can't ignore the fact that we, we you know, we, we're here in real life. We like to talk about film and television. And um, so Sam, growing up, helping her grandparents on their farm uh, on the weekends, swimming uh, with the dolphins <laughs> um, and, and, you know, learning to run and, and finding a skill set there. What what did you do? You, did you have any special films that are close to your heart that remind you of your early years? My my childhood movies most definitely The Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland. Um, I was obsessed with it. I think children get obsessed with things sometimes, and that was me. I had red shoes. I had the the blue and white. Oh, you really were. Yeah, yeah. pinafore dress. <laughs> and I think I identified with Judy because she was on a well. Dorothy because yeah. she was on a farm and mm. I was on a farm and we had a little dog similar to Toto so I just um I thought the movie was great and and I think it was the escapism and I watched it over and over and over again my auntie tells stories where they had to say that the tv had stopped working so they didn't have to put it on again and they could put the radio on or just not have tv Less. on yeah Less. but I think the Wizard of Oz speaks to so many people in so many ways, mainly because she does create this sort of fantasy world for herself. And, you know, obviously that's in colour and this wonderful use of colour from black and white, which is initially how the film starts. And, and sort of displays how children with their imagination or actually anyone with an imagination can create somewhere different, an alternate universe where... You know, um, and and the parallels that there are with real life and coming across difficulty and having to follow a road and really um, find challenges, find friends along the way, sort of, and and also enemies along the way, and having and having all those different kind of aspects to life. And it's a really good kind of, you know, the yellow brick road is a real microcosm for for life, I think, as it were. Yeah, I probably felt that way, and we lived down a, a country lane. And I guess we were a bit cut off on a farm. We, we didn't grow up in a town or a city. Um, and it was that, I suppose, the excitement of what else is out there and all these mm. wonderful things and adventures you can go on. Um, and maybe I, I connected with the movie on, on that basis. Yeah, yeah, I, I can completely understand that. And I, I think I used to click my heels together. I don't think I had red shoes, but I certainly remember at some point or another playing and clicking my heels together and imagining a faraway land. So it's a musical. Do you, musical something you like? Absolutely love, and I love going to the theatre in London. Okay. It's one of my favourite things to do with, with my mum because she's so into it's English and literature it's, it's a thing we like to do together as a mother and daughter lovely um, and I remember getting on the train coming down to London to watch The Lion King as a little girl and the Starlight Express oh um, yes yeah. I think that was Roller a must skates. yeah that was a must see <laughs> <laughs> um, and we also saw Billy Elliot when, when I was in my teens yeah um, 
And most, more recently, I, I watched the Book of Mormon, which I really enjoyed. Oh, Book of Mormon! I've mm. got to say, I did. Um, I did have very a very good uh, core and torso coming out of there. Yeah. Really, I'm like, <laughs> I, I really did laugh a lot. I've got to say. I know it's not for everyone, and sometimes the humour can be a bit. You know, it can be quite. Um, brutal um, mm. in some respects, but yeah, I really enjoyed that too. I wonder if they're going to make that into a film. So my next the moves on to what I was next going to ask is that have you seen you if you having you know been to the theatre quite frequently and seen a lot of musicals? What do you think about some of the film adaptations of musicals that have been recently? So. Well, recently, I, I don't know if I can talk about that, but I could say Moulin Rouge, I absolutely mm -hmm. loved. Um, I actually watched Les Miserables because yes. I'm interested in French culture. Of course, you studied French at university. Right, and yeah. part of the movie was actually filmed in Bath, where I live, in the southwest of England. Oh, okay. On the, on the, um, on the Pulteney Weir Bridge. And you studied at Bath, didn't That's you? That's right. And, then, and you've remained there ever since? I have, okay. yeah. yeah. Mainly because Pentathlon's home is there, the university for the training facilities. Um, and it's a nice place to live. But So I watched the movie and I, I liked it, but I just was sick of the singing. So, oh, really? Yeah. Sick in what way? <laughs> it was just too much, like, ahhing <laughs> and oh, and I just kind of wanted some dialogue and some normal speech. So I, I found it quite exhausting It to is watch. one of those traditional musicals. Very much. Where it, it, everything is, everything is, has a tune. Yeah. Everything is sung. And there isn't the dialogue in between exactly. to temper it, whereas something more modern like the Book of Mormon does have a bit of that. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, so struggled with that one, but, <laughs> but otherwise I am really open to watching a musical. Yeah. So in 2012, you won the silver medal at the London Olympics. And then a couple of years later, after the World Championships, you reached the number one spot mm. in the world. How was that for you? It was really the pinnacle because uh, London 2012 I was 22 so there was an element of being the underdog at that that part of my career in sports which is still really hard but I, I looking back I think it's slightly easier in terms of pressure and expectation. There's always um, I think a 50-50 split amongst all the athletes I've ever spoken to about whether it's easier to stay at number one or to get to number one and mm -hmm. to be that underdog it's very interesting yeah. I think. It's, mass it's really difficult it takes mm all of you to reach to reach that place in elite sport but going in I, I was just thrilled to be at London 2012 no I wasn't there thinking I have to win a medal I was there to enjoy it and that's what sports all, the, all about really um, afterwards I was just obsessed and I wanted to win I wanted to become world champion which I did and that took I think more of a mental struggle because I felt the sacrifice that, sacrifices that I was making, whereas previously it was always, oh, I'm doing this for the sport, it's, it's just what I want to do. Whereas when I had that position and I was saying no to things I really wanted to go to, like movie premieres, as an Olympic medalist from London, you were invited to that sort of thing. The Brit Awards, no, sorry, I can't go. I've got training, <laughs> I'm going to Azerbaijan for a competition. Um, so th that was really difficult. And then just, I suppose, getting older and the... Expectation? Expectation, but also how training that hard affects your body. Yeah. You're, we are not designed to last forever. And when you're in these high-impact sports, fencing and running, um, and you match that with, with swimming five times a week, uh, lots of gym, it's hard going. And that's where I, I found some balance by practicing yoga, by giving back to my body in a way of sort of nurture. Um, 
but it was mentally and physically really tough. I reached the number one spot and that was around 2015. It was great for my career in terms of um, maximizing my time as an athlete. And then it meant I went into my second games, Rio in 2016, being kind of the one to watch for the gold medal. And I think I struggled to deal with that and I just couldn't give myself a break and sort of switch off and relax. I, I tried and I tried and I tried, I did try, um, but I just couldn't find that kind of carefree, cool cat attitude that I had four years earlier. Mm. And I suppose parts of that, as, as well as just life, things that were going on behind the scenes, probably affected my performance at Rio. Mm. And it's probably a reason why I finished eighth and not, not first. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the the pressure that must have been on you, particularly from everyone over here in in England, who obviously was willing you to do well, having seen you do so phenomenally well yeah. uh, in, in London. It's more the pressure that, of the sport. When you represent your sport, your performance is how the sport accesses funding for the next four years. Yeah. So we, we each year each year we have targets, and then for each Olympics, we know we need to win as a sport one Olympic medal to ensure. The, the funding from UK sport, from the government essentially, for our next four years. And this pays for coaches' salaries, athletes' personal funding, the rent of the facility where we train in Bath, training overseas, etc. So the pressure doesn't just come yeah. from getting that accolade, right. winning that trophy, that medal, etc. It comes from all the different facets of the sport itself. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, can, I can hear that. Um, but when, when you were competing at the top of your game, what do you think were the most important tools that you had to prepare you to compete? Oh, I would... You said that you discovered yoga. Was that yeah. around that time? Yeah, definitely. I, I, yeah, I took yoga really seriously. Because I find it so fascinating when you talk about the laser run, talking about running, which is something, you know, sympathetic nervous system, high, you know, highly adrenalized state of your body, having to, you know, run as fast as you can. And then all of a sudden, oh, I've got to calm myself down, stimulate the parasympathetic, look at a target, shoot it. I mean, that, that requires so much mind over matter and emotional well-being, I think. Definitely. That is a skill and something that takes a lot of practice to slow your heart rate down, hold your breath, and when your hands are sweating, <laughs> yeah, it's hard, and not get distracted by the people next to you who are shooting and running away. Um, yeah, it, it is tricky um, and takes a, a certain type of practice. Um, but yeah, I loved yoga and the, the, med the meditation side of yoga um, and how that did translate quite well into the fencing and shooting events for me. But I also liked doing something that was non-competitive, that I felt was just mm. feeling my way. Um, and I was, I've never been competitive at yoga. I've never tried to be bendier than the person next to me on the mat. I've just done it for my own space. So I enjoyed that. And that is about being in your own zone, being in your own place where you just flow, I suppose. And, and that's what appealed to me with yoga. But um, I'm a really sociable person, so I loved pairing yoga with coffee or brunch. That was a lovely thing to do at the weekends. Really normal thing and something that I still do now. And um, in terms of what I would use with media and watching, when you're an athlete, you spend hours at an airport, traveling, sitting on a plane, easy jet flights. Did you get lots of box sets and oh, yeah. and things? I loaded my laptop with 
everything going and, and then you're in hotel rooms. When you get there to compete, you're just static. You have to sit there and rest and get ready to go in two days time, adjust to the time zone. So box sets were a huge part of my life. In those athlete. down moments, yeah. in those moments where you weren't training. Yeah. 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 So what did I watch? I mean, Gossip Girl. I watched all the classics. Um, uh, I loved the documentary series um, about how to, um, the serial killer documentary series on Netflix. Um, Making a Murderer? Making a Murderer. And then there was How to Be a Serial Killer was one of them, I think. Um, and, oh, Vampires. I have this, okay. you know, um, oh, what's it called? With Nina, uh, Nina Dobrev. Um, so, hmm. I'm not, not Twilight, Hang on. but uh, what's it called? I oh. watched. I watched so much of it. Oh, the one with Anna Paquin. Yeah. What's um, that one with Stefan and Damien? I remember the names of the brothers, the vampire brothers, but I can't remember the name. Vampire Diaries. Is that it? okay? Yeah, Vampire Diaries. Loved that, and um, loved the actors in it as well. Because <laughs> I was going to ask whether or not there was, you know, your coach would say, um, you you can only watch these kinds of things, you know, something like Gossip Girl, but something rather than something which is, um, which will sort of um, adrenalise you, you know, and leave oh, you on right. some cliffhanger or something like that, whether or not he was really rigorous about what you watched. And obviously, because, you know, as an athlete, you know, they're really careful about what you eat, how much sleep you get, what you do in your spare time and things like that. It's mm. a 24 hour job being an athlete, right? Mm. So um, I was just wondering if that would permeate into what you choose to do in your absolute free time. My coach had a huge influence on, on who I was and we would, in long car journeys, we'd talk about politics. Mm. He was from Hungary and had a slightly different view or I suppose a, an, he was older than me so had a, a broader perspective of global issues and, and as a politics student we enjoyed talking about that his wife was a west end actress and she appeared in mamma mia and cats oh <laughs> so something we'd do at the end of each season would be a trip if we'd done well it would be a trip in a limousine to london west end and we'd have some really good tickets and, and watch watch those shows we actually um yeah the wizard of oz was made into a musical and she starred in that um he sounds like more than just a coach. Yeah, he was a life As mentor. As a lot of coaches are for, yeah. for athletes. Um, so he, he definitely gave us loads of freedom and said that it, when we weren't training, we should do whatever we wanted and just make sure we relaxed. So you are currently the patron for the international organisation Peace and Sport. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, it was started by a modern pentathlete, wasn't it? And, um, and Prince Albert of Monaco is also a patron. Right, so this charity is created by the International Olympic Committee, essentially, um, and they, they donate some of their profits to sporting initiatives in third world countries, war zones or refugee camps. The Olympic Games is all about sport for all, and, and the IOC are keen to make that real and not just have sport for elite athletes at their Olympic Games but extend that to people all over the world. Um, so it was after hosting a documentary for the Olympic Channel that I was asked to become patron for the charity 
um, and there are a whole host of, of amazing athletes who, who work with the charity and the main thing we do is we have um, an annual conference and we meet to talk about wider issues of sport and how we can impact in a positive way and make change but we also talk about sport as a symbol of peace and so we hold up a white card and we ask that to be the symbol of the charity and that it represents sport as a safe place for, for anyone no matter of race, age, um, gender, nationality, religion, sport is something that we can all practice together in, in unity. It is very unifying and I think now comic release, relief has moved to sports relief. Even the Queen during her Christmas address she mentions the importance of sport and I think it is something now that really uh, does bring so many people together and even a football match brings all different types of people across the country together who are supporting that team and you don't have to live in Liverpool to support Liverpool mm. etc and it is amazing the the buzz and we, we all felt it here in 2012 when the Olympics was going on it just how amazing it is to have something everyone cares about everyone's cheering on you're all on the same side mm. and I think that's so wonderful and at the same time thinking about the power of how that can uh, infiltrate you know, developing countries as well. And, and obviously, um, and war zones and, 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 and so on and so forth in the world. I yeah. It's really powerful. Yeah, definitely. And it was when filming the, the documentary with the Syrian refugees in, in Zatari. Yes, I was going to talk to you about that. That was in 2016. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we went out there. Um, and Zatari is the, the north of Jordan, just before it meets with the border of Syria. And it's essentially desert land that the Jordanians don't want to live in because... Um, in the evening, it's, it's uh, minus degrees temperatures with really cold winds. And during the day, it's blazing hot. It really is a, a real desert there. But this is where ref, ref, now refugees, but Syrian um, citizens fled in fear of their lives from Syria and ended up into Jordan, hoping that their neighbours would welcome them. And they said, look, you, you can't come in, but we'll give you, offer you refuge here. And this is how Zatari was created it's now a huge city it's got millions of people living there who were all refugees um and the camp itself you just can't quite believe it no one's done anything wrong there but there is barbed wire fencing around it all and it goes over these sand dune mounds and uh, the united nations governments have donated and offered things like cargo containers you know the metal containers and that's what these people live in Wow. So they, they saw open holes and for the windows and doors. Um, Something so simple yet can be really effective. Yeah, well, it's, it's shelter, but it, it, it's not. And originally they were in tents, but then with the weather changes, the tents just would collapse and they, they weren't good, they weren't solid enough. So people now live in these makeshift cargo containers, other things that they've managed to build over the years that they've been there. But they rely on drops of water, food things, items, and it is a really surreal place because nobody works, no one can do anything, there's no way of earning money there, um, and there's also no phone signal, so the best way they can um, get onto the internet or call someone or message someone is to go near the barbed wire fencing because somehow that helps them mm. um, get a line for, for a call. It's a really bleak place, but there are excellent sport initiatives taking place there thanks to the IOC. Um, and the United Nations, um, and this is what we filmed the documentary about. So we so we went to the the wrestling arena, wrestling being one of the 
key sports in Syria, very popular there. And we met um, a wrestling coach who was also a restaurant owner back home who was taking on the wrestling academy and training boys how to wrestle. And he said it was the one way that these young men could learn life skills and respect Mm. whilst in the camp. And then we went to a table tennis uh, place where a a guy who was, I think, a solicitor, he was running the table tennis club. And people just loved going there for the social element and to come and practice with their children or friends. And they also had a tournament. We went to football. And there we met a lady who had decided to become and train as a football coach whilst in the refugee camp. And this was something that the IOC offered and paid for her qualification in in football coaching. At the beginning of her training, when she got girls to practice football on, on the pitch, the men, the Syrian men, would throw stones at them, would spit at them, hail abuse, because they felt women should not practice sport, that football wasn't for women. However, eventually they saw that it was helping the mental well-being of their wives, children and friends and that it it was a positive thing. So it has shifted attitudes of those people. And she now is pioneering the way for other women in the camp to become football coaches and practice football in their league, which is a good thing. And we finally went to the Taekwondo Centre which was incredible. This was um, a private charity that paired with the United Nations. Um, They were from Japan and they built this taekwondo centre where they taught taekwondo physically, but also had classrooms where the children would study taekwondo. And and taekwondo is all about self-defence and it's all about principle and understanding the world around you and respecting it. and yes, they have this deep-rooted yeah. um, traditions don't they, behind yeah. Taekwondo. Which was nice and a very different culture to mm-hmm. the Syrians. So, so I think that was an excellent element to have there. But at the back, he'd built a farm and he had lots of chickens. And uh, every child that would come, sit through the lesson, participate in the, the physical class of Taekwondo, they would take home an egg after the class. So that was a real incentive for them. Um, And then the chickens also acted as a learning tool for the children because they had these sort of um, climbing frames for the chickens that were in the shape of a triangle. And we walked around and he explained to the children, look at the chickens who who try to fly up to the top tier of the triangle. Can you see how they fall down straight away? Whereas look at the chicken that starts at the lowest tier and slowly (laughs) climbs his way up. Gradually he gets there and he stays at the top. And this is symbolic of life. You've got to start at the bottom. You've got to gradually work your way to enjoy what it's like to be at the top. That's something that the children wouldn't learn in the camp because they're just given everything mm. to survive. Mm. Uh, and this, and it was the children all, are very visual yeah. as well, aren't they? Yeah, so, so it was really wonderful. And he, what a he wonderful was, metaphor. yeah, he was going to get fish as well. That was his next plan. So I'd love to go back there um, and see how they're getting on. But it's so bleak, and those people are still there. And they're still waiting just to go home. How did making that documentary change you as a person? It was tough because on driving out of the camp back to Jordan to our four-star hotel, which was quite nice and enjoying uh, kind of Lebanese-style food, which I love, um, or Turkish food, um, I got a phone call, and this was in May 2016, and it was from my director saying, we've had the meetings and can confirm that you are officially selected for the Rio Olympic Games. And I just, usually I would scream or do something dramatic, um, but I just was like, okay, 
uh, I, I, and I knew I sounded really flat and ungrateful, so I kind of fluffed it up with loads of great words. Oh my God, I'm so grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But it was just so uh, disingenuous. It wasn't, it wasn't real. And I put the phone and I just thought, oh my God. I'm like, what does this even mean compared to what those people are going through? Mm. The, the purpose of what I'm doing, is this, is this really just a selfish mission or can I actually create some change or some good in what I'm doing? Because people are so helpless all around me. Whereas I've had a choice always. I've chosen to do, practice sport, chosen to compete. No one said I couldn't do it because I'm female. Um, and then luckily my sport's funded in the UK. So it, it did shift my attitude towards what I, what I was able to do in my life compared to others who I'd met there. I think seeing how others live can be so incredibly humbling. Mm. And it's only until you really go out there and see it with your own eyes that you can realize. Mm. Um, and do you see yourself doing any more documentaries? I'd love to. I'd love to get into um, factual documentaries. Uh, I, I really like adventure and exploring and meeting new people. I love that element. Um, so, so maybe it's about, I suppose, finding the right opportunity, the right time. I think documentaries are such a powerful tool um, for communication and a powerful medium uh, across the world, across the board. You can use subtitles and really get some parts of the world shown and shine some light on some darker places. And using uh, a name or figure like yourself, I think, is really important as well to draw in the audiences and to to sort of you know spread a message. Yeah, yeah. So the series of Camps to Champs is um, myself, but also four other Olympic athletes hosting their own show in a different part of the world. Amazing. Um, and last year, you announced your retirement at the age of twenty nine. Um, I know you thought about going to Tokyo for a moment, but what made you come to that decision to retire? I was honestly, I was just ready to do something new. And um, I'd given so a huge part of my life from probably about the age of 14 when I took it really seriously through to 29, um, putting sport first always. And I was just ready to change that. I'm getting married this year. I'd Congratulations. Grown, thank you. I'd, I'd grown a bit tired of saying, no, sorry, I can't do that. No, sorry, I can't make it. I can't make your wedding. Sorry. No, can't make that. I was just ready to, to change the way I lived. Um, and whilst I was able to call time on my career myself, because that doesn't always happen in sports, um, and while I was still good, I thought, right, I'm actually going to be brave and make, make a decision and, and I'm not going to do this again. So I said all my thank yous and my goodbyes and I retired. And um, now is a new journey and uh, I suppose the next step, and it, it has huge challenges, but it was definitely the right decision to make. Thank you so much for talking to us, Sam. Uh, on the final note, what have you seen recently that you could recommend to the audience? Oh my goodness. Um, or even if it's a series that you really love. Well, I don't know anyone who hasn't seen it, but I would recommend Line of Duty. I, I love think that. It's absolutely brilliant. It's like my crack, actually, at the moment. <laughs> I'm definitely really enjoying that. I think Jed Mercurio is, is such yeah. a brilliant writer. The script is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and what now for your future? Oh, well, I, I currently work, actually. I have a full time job working for the British Athletes Commission. Um, and we're all about helping, I suppose, athlete well-being. We're sort of um, taking care of, of athletes' issues, no matter how big or how small, uh, as they balance that with competitive life. Um, 
and we offer uh, mental health training, um, development training for when they retire from sports, but also issues and conflicts within their training groups. So that's what I'm doing full time. Um, it's a nice bridge between what you have done and yeah, what you're looking to do. Yeah, it's a really good first step into, I suppose, a, a new world. Um, and I'm learning lots doing it and it keeps me really busy because I balance that with any media opportunities for presenting. I'm also planning a wedding. Um, and yeah, I, I keep myself pretty busy. Sam, thank you so much for coming uh, to see us today and for talking to us. We really appreciate it. It's been wonderful talking to you. Great, Samantha thank you. Murray. Thank you.